0: Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm your host, Fred Dews. First up, Wessel's Economic Update, with Hutchins Center on Fiscal and Monetary Policy
1: Director, David Wessel. I'm David Wessel. This is my Economic Update. The president's budget is an annual Washington ritual. Every president since Warren Harding has been required by law to submit one. It's the only time a president has to make all his proposals add up. Now, the budget is always unveiled with great fanfare by the White House. There are charts and talking points and elaborate justifications to be scrutinized. The other party, this case the Republicans, always derides the president's budget as dead on arrival. Lobbyists gear up to fight provisions that would harm their clients. And then after a few days, it seems to fade away and the usual congressional politics and parliamentary maneuvering take over. But there's actually more in the president's budget than a jumble of spending increases and tax changes that are boiled down to bullet points for the TV news or your favorite blog. Buried in a volume called Analytical Perspectives, which is highly cherished by budget wonks in Washington, is a discussion of one of the most important long-run economic questions we face— how to get the U.S. economy to grow a bit faster. Now, economic textbooks tell us that the long-run growth rate is the sum of the growth in productivity, the amount of stuff we produce for each hour of work, and the growth in the labor force. Productivity is projected to grow by 1.8% a year over the next decade. That's much slower than the 2.2% we enjoyed over much of the last century. Based on current policies, it would take annual tax increases or spending cuts of about $175 billion today to keep the federal debt from rising further. But if we could nudge productivity growth up just a little bit, say to a hair more than 2%, it would take only $50 billion in annual spending cuts and tax increases to stabilize the debt. So every little increase in productivity makes a big difference in the fiscal health of the nation. So it's worth looking at the Obama budget to see what he proposes to do that would actually increase productivity and increase the fraction of American adults who are working. And there's actually a substantial list. He proposes, for instance, a big increase in spending on transportation and other infrastructure that, provided the projects are chosen wisely, would increase productivity growth. And he'd invest heavily in education, particularly in pre-K and in community colleges, arguing that history teaches us that education tends to increase the productivity of individual workers. And the budget also includes a host of proposals, some old, some new, to encourage more Americans to go to work. There's a sweetening of the tax credit to help cover childcare expenses – A new tax credit for second earners in two earner couples. An expansion of the earned income tax credit, which is a cash bonus the government offers low-wage workers. Grants to states to experiment with changes to the unemployment insurance system that would encourage jobless workers to hunt for jobs. And of course, the president's budget includes again his proposal to change the immigration law. That means more workers in the United States, and that would increase the number of people who work here and therefore the pace of growth. Now, it's common to ask how a president's budget addresses future deficits and the heavy burden of the federal debt, and that is important. But it's also important to ask the president how his budget would increase the pace of long-run economic growth, and to ask Republicans that same question when they present their alternative budget later this year. I'm David Wessel, and this is my Economic Update. My guest today
0: is Alice Rivlin the Leonard D. Schaefer Chair in Health Policy Studies, Director of the Engelberg Center for Health Care Reform, and a Senior Fellow in Economic Studies. In addition to her distinguished service at Brookings, she was an Assistant Secretary in the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, was the Founding Director of the Congressional Budget Office, directed the Office of Management and Budget in the White House, was Vice Chair of the Federal Reserve Board of Governors, and chaired the District of Columbia's Financial Assistance and Management Authority. And on top of all that, she is the only Brookings scholar that I know of who has done the Harlem Shake in public. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Alice.
2: Glad to be here, Fred.
0: Let's start with the Harlem Shake, which I'll put the video on on the on the on our website. Uh, what was the message of that?
2: The message of that was uh, stay alert, fix the debt. The organization that I was working with uh, is called Fix the Debt and they had a youth affiliate, still do, called The Can Kicks Back as in kick the can down the road but don't do it. And uh, the young people decided they would do something unusual to attract attention to the problem of the debt, and they got uh, former Controller General David Walker and myself uh, to uh, participate in a really silly but fun video in which we're talking very seriously about the debt, and then all of a sudden we're doing the Harlem Shake.
0: No, it is fun, uh, and uh, again, I will, I will put a link to it on our, on our web page. But recent reports have said that the deficit, so not the debt, the deficit is the lowest since 2007, but many say it will start to rise again as the population ages and retires. So can you comment on where you think uh, that situation is now and also, again, the debt?
2: The deficit has come down. It was expected to come down. We knew it would that because uh, the stimulus, which uh, was the antidote uh, to the uh, Great Recession, was temporary. It was going to s- to spend out and it did. And uh, as the economy recovered, uh, the deficit would come down. So that was a good thing, and it was expected. But we have this baby boom generation, uh, which is retiring and reaching the age at which they're eligible for Social Security and Medicare and uh, Medicaid. So uh, we also knew, uh, those of us who looked at projections, that that avalanche of people uh, was going to come into the federal program and increase federal spending over the next couple of decades. That is now happening. So this sort of uh, good news, bad news story that the deficit has, uh, would come down and then go back up again is uh, not news. It's been expected for a long time.
0: Let's turn our attention to some kind of really amazing anniversaries that are coming up in 2015, and they all have or nearly all have to do with you in some way, or you'll be able to uh, talk about them. One is the fifth anniversary of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, One is the 40th anniversary of the Congressional Budget Office starting operations with you at the helm. And also, we have the uh, 50th anniversary this summer of the creation of both Medicare and Medicaid. Right. What, that's a lot of anniversaries. And not a nice kind of round divisible by five anniversaries. We love
2: anniversaries with round numbers, that's, don't we?
0: Exactly. Let's start with the Affordable Care Act. That's that's still on a lot of people's minds these days. It's still a controversial issue in the political scene. If, if I could pose the question this way, how is it doing in your estimation?
2: It got off to a rocky start partly because it was politically controversial and partly because the most spectacular technological failure in a long time was the initial failure of the exchanges uh, to to work, a big uh, electronic problem. And uh, uh, when you have a big system like that going up, it often doesn't work the first time. And this one didn't. And it failed in a spectacular way. I think the Affordable Care Act is actually doing quite well. Now, it may be the fifth anniversary of the passage of the legislation, but it's only a little over a year that the exchanges have been activated and people were actually getting uh, insurance coverage and using it. But uh, millions of people are now covered who weren't covered before. And though there were initial glitches and there may be some more, uh, the act is actually doing what it was supposed to do. to extend coverage of health insurance to people who, for various reasons, didn't have it—either they weren't covered by employers, uh, or uh, they were working but they uh, didn't uh, have coverage, and they weren't poor enough to qualify for Medicaid—so they just weren't covered at all.
0: What about another hoped-for uh, effect of the Affordable Care Act, which is to drive down costs, or I guess limit the increase in the growth of costs. Where are we with that?
2: Remarkably, cost growth in healthcare has slowed dramatically. Now, nobody is quite sure why that is happening. We've had uh, conferences uh, here at Brookings and at other places on why have the the growth in costs uh, slowed so dramatically. It is partly that um, many of the more obscure parts of the Affordable Care Act uh, were demonstrations of uh, new kinds of uh, cost control, uh, mainly changing the way we pay doctors and other uh, providers to give them more incentive to produce high quality uh, medical care uh, at not quite such great volume, more efficiency in other words. Uh, some of those things are coming uh, to fruition. But but uh, many of them were in process uh, already. So uh, we are getting health care reform that makes health care more efficient, and that's helping. The other thing may be the uh, delayed effects of the recession itself. Uh, health care cost growth always slows down in a recession because people don't use as much health care. They can't afford to. And uh, historically, that has had rather long lag. You'd think it would be over by now, but it's not.
0: You and your colleagues in the Engelberg Center have uh, have written a lot about not only containing the, the cost growth issue, but also about issues like uh, improving the quality of healthcare. Do you think that uh, the Affordable Care Act is spurring innovations in quality? Do you think people are taking advantage of opportunities to seek better quality healthcare?
2: Yes, it's hard to measure the quality of healthcare, care. And a lot of effort now is going into how do we measure it and uh, uh, how do we get uh, the incentives right so that the providers are actually rewarded for producing uh, higher quality health care. Uh, and that isn't just a government effort. Other kinds of payers in the private sector are also trying to do the same thing. At the moment, there's a plethora of uh, measures of quality, and one of the problems is to sort them out, get the right ones. It's very similar to the questions in education, where uh, you shouldn't measure education just by how much is spent on it. Uh, You want to know how much kids are learning.
0: Kind of as a follow-up to that, you, you wrote recently that medical care is only part of
2: health. What did you mean by that? Medical care is probably a rather small part of health, actually. When you think about what would make Americans healthier uh, over their lifetimes, most of the things that would make a difference are not health care. They are exercise, they are diet, they are not smoking, they are not abusing other kinds of substances, they're environmental, uh, living in uh, in a cleaner environment, uh, and we have to work very hard on those kinds of things, and most of them are related to healthcare, but not very closely.
0: So I want to bring uh, the politics of it into this a little bit, and I know on some of these issues especially on the um, behavioral issues. There's a lot of political opposition out there. People have criticized, for example, First Lady Michelle Obama's healthy eating uh, and fitness program.
2: Indeed they have. It's a little hard to see how you can be against healthy eating and fitness. <laughs> I don't uh, know. But she's certainly taken some flack for it.
0: Uh, this, why do you think there is still so much opposition to what I think of as essentially an expansion of market-delivered health care?
2: Well, the... Expansion of health insurance in the Affordable Care Act is definitely uh, an attempt to use the market uh, to uh, expand coverage and to help people choose the best health insurance plan for them. That's what the health exchanges are. Uh, They are an electronic marketplace where you can go and look for uh, the options uh, that uh, you have uh, for uh, buying health care. There are a lot of different plans at different levels and they cover different things. And you get an array of those. And then uh, if uh, if your income qualifies you, you get a subsidy to buy the plan of your choice. So it's using the market uh, to To get people uh, covered with uh, better insurance for them. Why there's so much opposition? Well, some people don't uh, trust the market. Uh, Liberals in general would rather do it through the government itself. Uh, Conservatives tend to like market-driven solutions. But since this one was proposed by a Democratic president, uh, many uh, conservatives who otherwise would like markets are saying, well, markets are uh, very rough on people and uh, sometimes premiums go up. Uh, That's true. And uh, sometimes it's hard for people to choose and so forth.
0: One of the chief uh, challenges out there to the Affordable Care Act, many are saying, is the Supreme Court case King the Burwell, Burwell being the uh, Secretary of Health and Human Services. Yes, Sylvia Uh, Burwell,
2: a good friend of mine.
0: (laughs) And it rests on uh, what many call a simple and very correctable error in the text of the bill. The case is going to be heard by the court very soon. I guess we'll hear a decision in May or June or something. What do you make of this case and its potential threat to the Affordable Care Act?
2: It's an unfortunate symptom of the polarization of our politics at the moment. Uh, I think there's no doubt and most people think there's no doubt uh, that the Congress intended to extend the subsidies under the Affordable Care Act to all Americans who qualified for them no matter where they lived. That's a normal thing that Congress would do. The act was carelessly drafted. Uh, There were different versions and somehow in the end uh, somebody uh, wrote uh, a section that said the subsidies were only for the state exchanges and uh, actually most of the states are now on the federal uh, exchange. Now, I don't think there's any chance that Congress intended that a minority of the states uh, would get these subsidies and people who happen to live in other states wouldn't. However, that's the way it reads, uh, strictly uh, interpreted. So uh, the court has got to decide – uh will uh we invalidate uh, this uh these subsidies in the states where the federal government uh, uh runs the exchange uh, or will we go with what an interpretation of the intent of uh congress in normal times This would have been corrected uh, right after the bill was passed. Uh, Normally when uh, we don't have such bitter uh, political polarization, what happens after you pass any major piece of legislation is a piece of corrective legislation where they get the glitches out. There are always some glitches. Uh, But that didn't happen this time and the Congress is so divided that it basically can't happen. So we'll see what the Supreme Court does. Uh, they may go with intent of Congress. They may go with strict interpretation. Uh, if they go with a strict interpretation, then the Congress will have to decide uh, what uh, to do or individual states will have some options too. They can say, well, this federal exchange, we decided to go with the federal exchange. So it's really our state exchange.
0: That's well, a very serious issue. I, I know we'll we'll be looking to uh, to you and many of your colleagues in the in the Engelberg Center for uh, analysis and commentary on that when it when it comes to pass. Let's go back in time a little bit. Forty years ago, you took the helm as the first director of the Congressional Budget Office, and then you led that uh, organization for eight years. Can you reflect on what it was like to stand up an entirely new agency, and why did it come into being, and what was it like to to run it?
2: It was very exciting. The CBO was my favorite job because not very many people get to start a new government agency. That's very nervous-making. It's very stressful, uh, like starting any new thing. Uh, but when it works, and the CBO has, it's also very exciting and rewarding. It became about because the Congress at that time did not really have a an organized way of considering the federal budget, believe it or not. And they got into an altercation with the then President Nixon in uh, 1973, 74, uh, in which he was impounding funds, that is not spending funds that the Congress had appropriated. That's a big no-no if you're a president and the Congress thinks the power of the purse is given them by the Constitution, which it is. So, uh, the Congress used that excuse, in a sense, to do what the They should have done anyway and set up a budget process with budget committees, one in each house, and a new organization called the Congressional Budget Office that would give them an independent source of analysis and basically numbers.
0: I just want to – I guess Pat Brookings on the back a little bit. In my study of it, of the eight directors of the Congressional Budget Office, I believe four were or have been Brookings scholars.
2: Uh, uh, I think that's right.
0: <laughs> so uh, today, uh, the CBO is back in the news because um, the the new Republican majority in Congress have changed to something called dynamic scoring. Can you t- explain what that is and whether you think that undermines the, the objectivity of the agency?
2: When a bill is before the Congress, uh, the job of the congressional budget office is to give it a score meaning how much will it cost uh, how will it affect the federal budget and normally they look at what will the spending be or if it's a tax bill say it's a tax cut uh, how much revenue will be lost if it's a very large piece of uh, legislation They will also look at how it changes uh, behavior because the uh, tax rates have been cut. uh, uh, Will uh, more people work? And they could be looking at what is the major effect uh, on the economy itself. And sometimes they do. For example, when the recent immigration uh, reform was uh, proposed, they uh, said a big increase in immigration would benefit the economy. But it's often hard to tell uh, how something will affect uh, the whole uh, economy. and. The reason Republicans are interested is they would really like to have the CBO score tax cuts as very beneficial uh, to the economy and uh, ignore the downsides like they raise the deficit and that might raise uh, interest rates. They're not so enthusiastic about doing dynamic scoring on the spending side. For example, a big infrastructure bill uh, would create jobs and um, probably enhance the future productivity of the economy and have it grow faster. Uh, But if you believe in small government, you're not so enthusiastic about having uh, that done. I think we are moving toward uh, doing as much dynamic scoring as is reasonable and based on actual fact. uh, I don't think it will make very much difference.
0: Let's turn now to Medicaid. And this actually will take us back to the Affordable Care Act uh, in many respects. So it's the the 50th anniversary of of both the Medicaid and Medicare programs. Uh, And one of the issues in the news these days is whether... Uh, states will expand their Medicaid programs under the Affordable Care Act. A lot of Republican governors initially declined to, but we've seen a few have either accepted the expansion or are developing their own programs to expand Medicaid. Can you you talk about whether you think more Republican governors, more governors in general are going to accept Medicaid, what the implications of doing it and not doing it are? The
2: Affordable Care Act was designed to expand insurance coverage in two ways. One was uh, to allow people to buy insurance on the exchanges and get a subsidy to do that. And the other was to expand Medicaid so that it applied to people who uh, were uh, just above the, the poverty line. And um, the Supreme Court said uh, that uh, that had to be optional. So some states did not expand Medicaid and that left a really uh, peculiar situation because there were some people who didn't qualify for the subsidies on the private exchanges and didn't qualify for Medicaid either. They were in between. Uh, Gradually, I think the – States that didn't expand Medicaid are realizing that's a problem. They've got a lot of citizens who aren't getting uh, the benefits that uh, our people are getting in other states. Some of them will simply uh, expand uh, Medicaid, uh, but some of them are going for waivers of the exact Medicaid uh, provisions uh, – And the federal government is allowing them to do this, saying uh, essentially, give us the money and we will figure out a a way that is more in accord with the way we want to do things uh, to uh, cover uh, these people. And that may be uh, giving them a subsidy to go on the exchange.
0: I want to uh, take us back for a couple of questions back to health care uh, because then I want to go into what the Engelberg Center is is doing these days, uh, and Brookings in general on healthcare. Um, one of the things that you and, and colleagues have pointed out is that that eighteen percent of total national spending in this country, or about eighteen percent, is on healthcare. Whereas in other advanced uh, countries like, like Canada and, and and most of Western Europe, most Western yeah. Europe is maybe around twelve percent. Why does healthcare cost so much in the United States?
2: Well, one reason is we're not very healthy compared to some of those uh, other countries. Another is that we pay our health professionals, especially uh, doctors and especially specialists, uh, at a higher rate. Uh, If you're a doctor in Canada or the UK or even France or Germany, uh, you don't make as much as the top-ranking doctors in the United States make. And we actually use more specialists than they do. They rely more on primary care docs uh, and in some cases on other health professions, uh, midwives and nurse practitioners and so forth, uh, who don't earn as much. So it's partly that. Uh, It used to be that we had fancier equipment, uh, but that uh, is uh, less of a source than it used to be. We also have very high administrative costs for our our health system because it's so complicated uh, and so fragmented. We don't have a single-payer system as many uh, countries do. Uh, We have a whole lot of payers, uh, public and private, and that uh, raises the administrative costs quite a lot.
0: I'm going to add uh, to the show notes of this podcast a, a paper that you and Mark McClellan, your colleague Mark McClellan, worked on. Uh, improving health while reducing cost growth, what is possible? And you you pointed out a few ideas, so I'll I'll, I'll make that available. One of the things that some people suggest is that maybe healthcare should be more like an open market where people understand the prices of of, uh, goods and services, and maybe they can shop around. But is it really feasible for a consumer of healthcare to shop on an open market for health services the way that we might shop for a car or a toaster?
2: No, I don't think it is. It is, however, feasible to shop for a health plan, uh, and that's what the Affordable Care Act allows you to do. And... uh, it uh, does uh, does seem to be working. Uh, Part D of Medicare also allows you to shop for a drug coverage uh, plan. And you can shop intelligently if you have enough information about what the plan covers and uh, what uh, the – outcomes have been for the people who are in it. Now, this last part, we don't do very well yet. Uh, we don't have much uh, information about uh, the outcomes of health care that's, uh, that's public. Now, some states are beginning this, and we have some uh, information on death rates by hospital and so forth. Uh, but we're a long way from having the kind of information that will allow people to be Uh, knowledgeable shoppers.
0: Brookings just launched a a new blog. It's called Health 360. Can you talk about your vision for it, uh, what we can expect from contributors like uh, Henry Aaron, Stuart Butler, others from across the institution?
2: Well, I hope we can expect very good analysis, very readable, uh, not too long. Uh, blogs are a uh, thing you uh, really turn to these days for the latest information that uh, hasn't uh, – or opinion that hasn't appeared yet in uh, other channels. And we hope that the Health 360 Brookings Health Blog will simply uh, add to the level of conversation about healthcare policy in Washington and at Brookings will uh, uh, be the go to place or a go to place for people who are interested in health policy. And we'll also at the institution uh, rev up the conversation across our uh, divisional lines uh, so that the government studies people are talking more to the economists and, and so forth. This is not an Engelberg Center blog. It is a Brookings blog on health. Yeah,
0: 360 suggests it's not only all around Brookings, but it's also all around the issue of, of health policy.
2: That's right. Uh, health policy, uh, health care, and health.
0: Uh, I, and I believe we uh, will be able to find it on the website at brookings.edu health360. One, uh, one last question. Um, what kinds of things are on the horizon for health policy research at Brookings?
2: Very eclectic things, I think. Uh, we want to work more on this question of health and, as opposed to health care. Uh, what can you do to use the resources of, of um, uh, schools and uh, uh, community development and others uh, to improve health uh, and not just health care? And how do you get the healthcare system working with the non-health providers uh, to improve health? Uh, we want to work more on the question that uh, we talked about earlier of how do you make healthcare more efficient, uh, more more value for for the dollar, uh, so that it isn't so expensive and people actually get better care. We're working a lot on payment reform as a direction uh, to go, and there's there's more to do there.
0: Well, Alice, this has been a really interesting conversation, I think an important conversation about, about health care. I would just say thank you for your exemplary public service as well. It's quite impressive to read your, uh, your curriculum vita and, and see all of the, the the agencies that you've been a part of and chaired in Washington. So thank you for that. And thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you. If you have any questions for Alice, David, or any guests of the show, please send an email to bcp at brookings dot edu. This podcast is made possible by the production skills of Zach Kolzer, the art design of Jessica Pavone, and web support from Rebecca Weiser and Eric Abelagin. You can listen to episodes on our website at brookings.edu bcp, on iTunes, and on Stitcher.